a hill. I was about to give this sermon on Jephthah. The bloke with me asked me, what do you think Jephthah can teach us? I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm an aeronautical engineer. What do aeronautical engineers do? Well, he said, have you ever thought why windows in aeroplanes are not square, but they're round? I said, no, I've never thought of that. He said, because they found that when they put the square windows in aeroplanes, pressure would build up at the right angles, the windows would shatter, and the fuselage would shatter, and the plane would be lost. Now, we put rounded windows in so that the pressure is spread more evenly. I was glad to hear that. We would not put up with poor engineering. We wouldn't put up with poor medical treatment. We wouldn't put up with poor financial advice. We wouldn't put up with poor plumbing practice. We wouldn't put up with a mechanic who didn't really understand engines. And yet we readily accept poor theology, untrue thinking about God, And we do that because the effect of that, the catastrophe of that, is not found mainly in this life, but mainly it may be found in the life to come. And the catastrophe of poor theology is often felt in silent, hidden, emotional ways. Here is a lady who spends all her life in the church. She's at everything. She's at every Bible study, every meeting. She contributes greatly. And yet on her deathbed, she says to her pastor, Oh, pastor, I don't know if I've done enough. So she's carrying the burden of a demanding God who requires that she does enough and God is the main source of her anxiety because she can never be sure that she has done enough. Jephthah has great things to teach us. Here is an illustration of poor theology leading to tragic consequence. And we meet today a rare emotion in the book of Judges. We meet sympathy Oswald Chambers, the famous Scottish preacher, was once asked, why is it that men leave ministry too early? He said, because of the three Gs, girls, gold, goals, the desire for illicit sexual relationships, the greedy desire for wealth, gold, and unworthy ambition. But none of those three Gs seem to be Jephthah's problem. He has another problem with another G. Jephthah's problem is not with gold, girls' goals, but with God. Now come with me to chapter 10 and let's look at the context here. So just one page back, chapter 10 in your Bibles, please follow in your Bibles today. And notice in verse 4 we meet the judge before Jephthah and his name is Jair. And verse 4 tells us that he has 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. Then go to verse 6, Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord and the Lord is angry with them, verse 7, and sells them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. So this is a, a consistent pattern. Verse 10, Israel cries out to the Lord and the Lord says, go and cry out to the gods you've chosen, see what they will do for you, see how much they will help you. And Israel simply says in verse 15, we have sinned, do what you think is best. And verse 16 in chapter 10 is the verse that's suitable for underlining. God could not bear Israel's misery any longer. And then we read that the Ammonites are this superior force. They're the top of the power pyramid in the 12th century BC. 
And so that brings us to chapter 11. And the leaders of Israel turn to Jephthah, verse 1, because he's a mighty warrior. He is the son of Gilead, but his mother is a prostitute and he's cast out by his brothers, verse 3. And they say, you won't inherit in our father's house. And so he becomes the leader, verse 3, of a group of scoundrels. Now, that's the pre-context. Let's look at the post-context. Go over to chapter 12. And we meet the judge who comes after Jephthah, chapter 12, verse 8. And his name is Ibzan. And we're told that he has 30 sons and 30 daughters. And then chapter 12, verse 13, Abdon. We're told that Abdon has 40 sons and 30 grandsons. Now, in the midst of this, you've got Jephthah. Now, Maxine and I have five children, all grown up, all in a different family, all have all established their adult family, and each of them have a dog. So we have five grand dogs. I find I'm drawn to the dogs that don't have a pedigree. Molly over here in the manse is one of those dogs. Molly came from a refuge. And I'm drawn to Molly because we don't know anything about her background. And I think that's why Jephthah is my favourite judge. There's much to admire in him. But the first thing you admire about him is that he's a man with no pedigree. His mother is a prostitute. And he's made to feel an outsider. Look at verse 2 of chapter 11. His brothers say, you're not going to inherit in our father's house. So Yahweh's purpose, we immediately see, is not thwarted by an empty CV. A lack of background is no hindrance to God. For many years, I worked at a Bible college and students would come along for the initial interview and say, I'm no academic, I've got no academic background. And I'd say, when was the last time you studied something you loved? Oh, I've never done that. Well, you will study something you loved here. Don't let the past be any necessary indicator of the future. So let's make a fresh start. Pedigree. Uh, Jephthah had none. But he was mightily used of God. And secondly, notice in verse 1, he's called a mighty warrior. Now, you'd think that a mighty warrior would fight first and talk second. But this bloke talks first and only fights when it's necessary. Look at verse 12. He sends men to the king of Ammon. What do you have against me? Why have you attacked my country? And the third thing about Jephthah you've got to love is that he's an able historian. Why aren't more of my grandchildren studying history? Well, you can ask them. But history is vitally important. That's what every diplomat needs, isn't it? If I was appointed Australia's diplomat to this country, the first thing I'd do is read the history of that country and the history of our relationships with that country. Now look at verse 13. The king of the Ammonites gives Jephthah a history lesson. When Israel came out of Egypt, he says, you took my land and I want it back peaceably. Now, I don't know where Jephthah got his history. Was it from his prostitute mother or was it from his father? But notice he has a better grasp of history. Look at verse 19. Not so, he says. We asked the king of the Amorites permission to pass through his land He denied us that permission. There was a battle and we won the land of the Amorites. And Israel took the land of the Amorites because the Lord gave it to us. Now look at verse 23. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you got to take it over? 
And furthermore, verse 26, we have held this land for 300 years and not one local king has disputed our ownership of the land. And you say, I have wronged you. It's just because you, the Ammonites, have got the supreme power these days and you're seeking to rewrite history and you're seeking to retake a more right territory, but it was never your territory. It's been the territory of Israel because the hand of God has given it to us. You keep what your God Shemosh gives you, nothing. And we'll keep what God Yahweh gives us. So there he is. He's a great negotiator, isn't he? He's got a firm grasp of history. He's a diplomat. He's a historian. He's a mighty warrior. And look at verse 29. He is charismatic. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He is Yahweh's man. He was enabled in the battle spiritually. If you go back to verse 27, look at what he says to the king of the Ammonites. The Lord judge between us. The Lord is the judge. And that's why when you flip over into the New Testament and look at the gallery of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, do you remember that verse that says, and there was Gideon, there was Barak, there was Samson, and there was Jephthah. He earns his place in the gallery of the faithful because there's something good about Jephthah. But there is a massive but. He is wrong in his thinking about God. Have a look at verse 30 and 31 because I think that's the centre of the narrative. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands... Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. If you give me victory over the Ammonites, then whatever meets me will be yours. He does a deal with God. He defeats the Ammonites and he returns home. And here is his daughter. His only daughter, we are told in verse 34, comes out with timbrel and dancing to celebrate her father's victory. So we have Jair with his 30 sons, Ibsan with his 30 sons and 30 daughters, Abdon with his 30 sons and 40 grandsons, and Jephthah with his one single only daughter. She was an only child. And yet she is noble. He tells her of the dilemma. Look at verse 36. Her response, my father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. Poor theology. Terrible consequences. He loses his only child. And then verse 40 says that painfully there will be a sword through his heart every year because every year the maidens of Israel would gather for four days, year by year, for four days in the year. The daughters of Israel lamented the daughter of Jephthah, the precious daughter he once had, the future grandchildren that would never be. A foolish vow springing from wrong theology. Now, stick with me here, because we're going to get a bit technical. I want to put it to you that there are two reasons why this may not have meant the death of Jephthah's daughter. 
The first reason is that the Bible clearly says that burnt offerings are to be male, they are to be animals, and they are to be without blemish. And his daughter doesn't fit that category. Secondly, Deuteronomy chapter 12 says that God hates child sacrifice. It is a pagan practice. And thirdly, I've checked the footnotes of my ESV and textually there is a question over the word whatever that it could actually mean whoever. That's the footnote in my English Standard Version. And as all Hebrew readers know, the word and in verse 31 could equally mean or. So follow with me and it could read like this. If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the door of my house when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's or I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So in other words, when I get back, whatever, if it's a thing or whoever, if it's a person comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, if it is a whoever, if it is a person, that will be the Lord's. Or if it is a whatever, that is an animal, then I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, I believe that that is consistent with what we read from verse 37 onwards. Because notice, the friends of Jephthah's daughter do not mourn for the loss of her life, but they mourn for the loss of her marriageable ability. Give me two months, they say, and I weep with my friends because I will never marry. Not because I'll be of burnt sacrifice. And in verse 38, they wept because she would never marry. And verse 39, and she was a virgin. So therefore, wherever you'd land on that one, I want simply to say to you that Jephthah had a wrong conviction about God and it either led to the death of his daughter or the death of his line. What was Jephthah's thinking about God? He thought that God was needy. He thought that God was greedy. He thought that he could offer God a favour and get his way, um, offer something God decent that he could get his way with God. God cannot be bought. Now, maybe you think this way or you hear others who think this way. Oh, if I get through this exam, I'll start reading my Bible. Oh, if I pass this medical test, I'll start going to church. It's a typical pagan way of thinking. God acts in grace. 10.16 that we underline, he's impatient at the misery of his people and he will glorify himself contrary to their deserving. But along come Jephthah and says, I'll do a deal with you if then. It's superstitious bribery. So Jephthah, you see, fails the test on the eve of his greatest battle with the Ammonites. And of course, he foreshadows the Lord Jesus, who on the eve of his greatest battle at the cross, there's no if then bargaining with him. Jesus, remember, positions himself as the son of Abba Father and says, not what I will but what you will, the safest, securest place to be. Jephthah could have prayed, Yahweh, I go in the strength of your spirit against the Ammonites. You are the judge. The safest place for me to be is at the centre of your will. Your will be done, not mine. But he seeks to bribe God because he sees God as a needy or greedy God. Friends, here's the lesson. Trust fails when it is built on poor theology. Poor thinking about God, the needy, greedy God who always seems to be open to be bargained with. I have people who say very often to me, oh, I trust God too. 
My question is, which God do you trust? Do you trust the God of your own imagination? Or do you trust the God who alone is trustworthy, who who reveals himself in the pages of the Bible? Girls, gold, goals, God. Poor theology. Jephthah is in Judges as a warning to us. He's got so much going for him, but he's infected by theological corruption, which leads to tragic consequences. So my friend, who is the aeronautical engineer, what does Jephthah have to teach to us? Be careful to avoid poor thinking, wrong thinking about God. Let me tell you about an elder. He was an older man. He'd served the church for many years. And one day he said to me, David, I've done some terrible things in my past. Do you think God will hold them against me? It's tragic, isn't it? None of us have shoulders broad enough to carry the weight of guilt. This man, though he knew so much, knew little about grace, forgiveness and justification. What do you do about poor theology? Well, turn with me, if you would, to page 1846 in our New Testament reading, 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, page 1846, follow me here, please. Uh, Timothy is the pastor of the first century church at Ephesus. Paul writes to him, look at what he says in verse 1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. What will they do? Verse 3 tells you. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Now imagine that. The base of my relationship with God is my marital status, or the base of my relationship with God is my diet. Now we all make resolutions in the new year about diet. Imagine if you based your relationship with God on the base of you keeping that resolution. You'd be gone, wouldn't you? And so these people, uh, they don't have an assured relationship with God because they think that here is a God who will be pleased by our marital status or be pleased by our diet. And notice what Paul says to Timothy as he faces the poor theology within the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 6. He says the same thing three times. If you point these things, look at verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters. In other words, if Timothy, verse 6, is to be a good minister of Christ, he needs to realise that there is a body of truth to be taught. And that body of truth includes, if you look back to chapter 3, verse 16, the supremacy of Jesus Christ who appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And Paul says to Timothy, you take this body of truth, this body of doctrine, and he gives him 12 imperatives. If you're to be a good minister, point them out, verse 6. See that they nourish you, verse 6. See that you follow them, verse 6. See verse 9, that you fully accept them. Verse 10, that you labor and strive for these things. Verse 11, that you command and teach these things. Verse 13, that you devote yourself to these things. Verse 14, that you do not neglect your gift. Verse 15, 
that you give yourself wholly to them. Verse 16, that you watch your life and doctrine closely and you persevere in them. Now, Timothy, that's what you are to do. And the reason is, it's the most serious issue, isn't it? Verse 16, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There is no more serious matter than to know that you stand right before God for all eternity and poor theology can have eternal consequences. So what am I to do about poor theology? Don't go to a church where the pastor's great feature is that he's a nice man if he doesn't preach the Bible and bring these things to us. The pastoring I need is described here. The elders I need are described here. The small group leaders I need are described here. And they are to be pastorally minded. Jephthah says that poor theology will have a fatal flaw and it will lead to tragic circumstances. And so pastors and leaders, you are to immerse yourself in these things seriously and you are to love me enough to tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. Dear friends, Jephthah's tragedy is a lesson for us. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Here's a motto for the new year. Don't let anything keep you from God's presence, God's people, and God's print. God's presence in prayer, God's people in fellowship, God's print in the Bible. Tragically, a few years ago, I was in Africa. The problem with the African church is superficiality. And we were there to distribute to pastors great book sets in order that they would have solid reading. And it was a joy to distribute these book sets to many pastors throughout the land of Nigeria. But one day when we left the cathedral in Nigeria, we came out and we saw spread on the ground on blankets outside the cathedral in Nigeria, all sorts of cheap American paperbacks. Not authentic Christianity, but parodying as Christianity. And they were going for 10 or 20 cents. And our pastors were gobbling them up and reading them. It is tragic. Let us be theological consumers with discernment. What did the old Bishop of Liverpool say? That which keeps me from my Bible is my enemy. God's presence, God's people, God's print. Jephthah makes me weep. A fine man, a gifted man, a God-honouring man with a fatal theological flaw. She was his only child. Well, let's pray. In your love, our Heavenly Father, you will not let us go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your clear revelation to us in the Bible. You've shown us what you are like in the Lord Jesus, God, the only Son, who is on the Father's side, has made him known. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Help us to be discerning, enthusiastic and obedient consumers of your revelation. And we pray in the name of Christ, who is the way, the truth and the life. Amen.
Now, I realise I've omitted to say one thing, which are in my notes. What happened to Jephthah's daughter if she was not a burnt sacrifice? What happened was that she became like we would think of as a nun. And there are various examples in the Old Testament of women who are committed to the tabernacle or the temple for a lifetime of devoted service to Almighty God, married to God. And that's probably what happened.